Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Now we've got an old voice revisiting the studios today. Are you calling me old, Jake? Old, old, old. I'm Nina Copel. Hi. <laughs> well, you were, you were hosting with me a little while back when Ellen was on hiatus. It was really fun. But Ellen's back now, and that's fun too. <laughs> but you're just filling in for Ellen this week while she is off gallivanting, doing her own thing. We've got some really cool stories to do today, though. This one is, I'm not sure how readily f- you were following the kind of climate conference that happened in Marrakesh. I was following kind of from a distance, but I saw how much work you were putting into it and how much research you were doing. So I feel like maybe there are lots of things I don't know. The story that you'll hear today is one we're catching up on some of the countries that have not yet ratified their emissions reductions target from the Paris Agreement. If those were a whole lot of mumbo jumbo words, stick around and we'll decode all of that for you a little later on. Also, you're going to hear a story that was from a little earlier on this year, one that you liked about mushrooms. I loved this story. They were like brain-eating mushrooms, right? It's some sort of mind-control mushrooms thing, not the hallucinogenic kind. This is another one that's pretty freaky. As someone who is scared, and I feel like I may have already said this on the show before, as someone who is scared of carnivorous plants, this story blew my mind. That's all coming up, but up first... It was one of these days I was talking about that, you know, we were lucky it was quite sunny and warm and there was a minke whale that was coming up and breathing through kind of a small crack in the ice. This is Jess Melbourne Thomas. This huge thing was kind of just gently and slowly kind of sliding up through the crack to to breathe out its blowhole and uh, it's quite a distinctive sound. I don't know if you've heard a whale blow through its blowhole. but um, What does it sound like? Oh, I can't make the noise. It was just incredible to be able to watch this and we were all standing around watching and everyone was quite excited and I managed to kind of step back and not look where I was going and step into a hole and just really quickly fell through a hole in the ice into the very cold water. Oh, by the way, this is in Antarctica. Was it cold? It was freezing. (laughs) I was so embarrassed I'd fallen in. I just I didn't make any noise. <laughs> so wait, it, it was, was it was just kind of like a, a bed of ice that just a very thin bit of ice. I should have noticed, and I just stepped on it. But it it was this really you know kind of striking contrast of the absolute beauty of that environment, but how quickly it can, if you're not careful, cause harm. Jess first went to Antarctica about three years ago. It was early spring, I think it was September or October time. By boat. In the Aurora Australis, which is the big orange Australian boat that goes to Antarctica at the moment. It's a decent trip. It was a transit over the Southern Ocean of about seven days. Although it's not always smooth sailing. That part of the Southern Ocean is renowned for being pretty wild and and very big seas. Depending on the trip, you can be lucky or unlucky in terms of how seasick people (laughs) people get. When they first arrived... You start to see icebergs and we, I think it's tradition to run a a bit of a betting on, on when the first iceberg will be sighted and then from seeing the first iceberg, you start to see quite a lot more ice and then you certainly do notice the change in temperature. It was very majestic and the scales at which 
you can view the scenery and the size of the icebergs and the ocean vistas and you start to see the wildlife and you know it's like nothing I'd ever experienced before and my background as a marine scientist was working on um, tropical coral reefs so it was really quite quite a contrast in terms of the environments that I, I was used to conducting science in and, and really very striking. So yeah, this wasn't exactly a holiday for Jess. She was there as a research scientist representing the Australian Antarctic Division. And what really separated her work from, say, a tourist trip down to Antarctica was where they were. The sea ice environment, I guess, is quite different from being on the continent itself. A sea ice environment is pretty much that. Big blocks of frozen water which is different to that of inland Antarctica. You're really walking amongst a landscape of contorted ice covered in snow and some areas where it's you know, really quite three-dimensional and others where it's very large, flat expanses. There are a lot of penguins around. <laughs> <laughs> and what was Jess doing? So one of my jobs was to use a, I don't know how to describe it, like a big hollow drill. Drilling down into the ice, the ice that had also swallowed her up at one point. It would screw it down into the ice and it, it would cut a circular core of ice. So about, I don't know, like 15 centimetre diameter core of ice. And then we would be able to pull that up out of the rest of the ice and chop it into bits and, and sample it for the things that it contained. Things like phytoplankton. So phytoplankton are plants. They're microscopic little guys that are hugely important in the world's oceans. They provide something like 50% of the world's oxygen through photosynthesis. They're also a food source for bigger types of plankton, like zooplankton, and krill too. These phytoplankton will lodge themselves into sheets of ice to grow. That's where they can get a lot of sunlight. The underside of the ice is quite creviced and if you're a krill or a zooplankton that's kind of a few centimetres or even smaller, then you can actually swim into those crevices and pick and scrape off the algae or phytoplankton that, that are growing against the ice. But Jess wasn't there just to observe krill eating phytoplankton. She had bigger questions that needed answers. Questions that affect the entire planet. If we have a better understanding of those finer scale processes, we can then make better predictions about the way that ecosystems might respond to climate change in the future. So if we see warming and a decrease in the availability of sea ice in winter, what effects might that have for the species that we're interested in? Another part of Jess's role was as an ecosystem modeler. So she'd take data that she got from her research, input it into a computer, and model out a potential future for these environments. The, the work that I was doing on that voyage, we melted the ice slowly in a dark room on the boat. And in the cold, we didn't kind of just warm them up in the microwave. So once we'd warmed them up slowly, we filtered them through onto, onto filter paper, and you, we could see that as like a brown mat. And that was what then goes into the machine that measures the densities. By measuring their density, what does that tell you? So that's telling you how much phytoplankton was in the column of ice that you sampled. So you can then figure out 
or make predictions about how much there might be at a larger scale beyond that core of ice that you sampled. So what do some of these models that you're simulating say about the future of phytoplankton in these sea ice areas? Um, as is often the case when we talk about biology and ecology, that it, it's complicated. <laughs> it, it may be that um, in some areas we see a little bit less productivity in the future associated with sea ice, but given the complex life cycles for animals like Antarctic krill that eat the phytoplankton and the different ways we talked about that they use that ice habitat, it, it might be that in some ways they benefit Do you mean in terms of for the krill, if the ice or the sea ice is melting, meaning there's less room for these phytoplankton to go, that the krill will be able to eat more and that they'll kind of flourish? Yeah, partly. And also if the water's warmer and the ice is a bit thinner, then it means that there's more light underneath the ice, you know, and and light is what the phytoplankton need for photosynthesis to grow. And so it might be that there's slightly more algae in the areas that krill are using them for food, um, at least in the kind of the short to medium term. Isn't that a concern to you, though, because if the krill are kind of getting more, just to simplify what we were saying, if the krill are getting more food, that's kind of throwing off a balance in the food chain. If there's so many krill eating so many phytoplankton, would it change up the food chain in its like natural cycle? Yeah, it could do. And that's part of the reason that we use these computer models to look at different scenarios for how the effects that change might have in in the food web and in the ecosystem more generally. It may just be that the extra productivity supports productivity at, at higher trophic levels. So penguins and seals and fish might do slightly better. But then there are these competing or conflicting effects of other changes in the environment. And it's about teasing out how those relative effects play out in overall change. Why do we need to pay such close attention to what's happening in Antarctica? Because of its large ice sheet provides us with a very long historical record of changes in the environment and in carbon dioxide concentration and temperatures. And so it's been an important source of information in terms of understanding past and current change because Antarctica is a place where there's no concentration of human populations. It helps us to be able to tease apart the effects of change in the environment um, as opposed to the direct effect of humans. Um, so we can kind of think of it as a little bit of the canary in the coal mine in terms of the way that the environment and ecosystems might be responding to climate change. Meaning we're already seeing some bad things happening, so let's try not screw it up any worse. Yeah, yeah. Research scientist at the Australian Antarctic Division, Jess Melbourne-Thomas. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Why are you so scared of carnivorous plants? So my friend keeps posting this meme on my Facebook wall, which is from The Simpsons. Have you seen that episode where they land in the carnivorous plant and then they just push open the walls of the flower and walk out because it's actually not that scary? Oh, that's the one that also the plant that kind of emits this weird scenting thing that kind of kills all the other plants around I don't know. I've never seen the whole episode. But I just, (laughs) I don't think that would happen. I think if you fell into a giant plant, it would eat you. Do you realise that this is an irrational fear? Yes, I understand it's irrational. Fear in Sydney's climate? Uh, Well... 
I mean, yes, I understand it's irrational, but I did go to Borneo and do a hike before realizing that I probably entered the most prolific area for carnivorous plants in the world. And I saw some, and I have to say they looked much tamer (laughs) than I expected, but I kept a very safe distance. How do carnivorous plants compare to ones that might take over your mind? Anything that's doing things to me that I don't understand freak, <laughs> freak me out. I don't want any plants. I can't sleep with plants around me. Let's be honest. I'm just scared of plants. <laughs> well, this is a story that we played earlier this year, which might freak you out a little bit. So, so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. So these are called cordyceps. Um, actually, I think this is an ant. This is an ant. Um, and what happens is the cordyceps release their spores, and then the spores land on the insect's back. And then the spores slowly start to soak into the insect and start to eat the insect away. Yep, the mushroom literally eats the ant from the inside out. But that's not even the weirdest part. Then what happens is, in order for the mushrooms to have the best chance of survival, they make the ant climb to the highest point in the forest. So they literally use mind control and the ant climbs its way to the highest tree. When it's at the top, the mushroom knows it's at the highest point and then it kills the ant. Then the ant's at the top of the tree dead and then the mushroom grows out of the ant and then releases its spores at the top of the forest. So it's given itself the best chance to maximise how it releases its spores. This is Philip. He's the founder of a business called Fungi Mental, which has made him somewhat of a mushroom expert. I know this is not like an insectologist or whatever, but do they realise what's happening? I don't don't think they do. I think it's just like, it's probably like them being really high and just like staggering around in a bit of a, in a bit of a daze. Think, think about the, if this has mind altering, you know, chemicals in there, could it, could it help humans in the sense that if you've got someone who has got late onset dementia or something like that, you know, I mean, obviously this makes an ant go to the highest point and kill itself, but are there chemicals in there that we could research that could help humans um, and right now the study of macology is only probably 50 years old and we only reckon we've studied around 2-5% to 5% of all mushrooms so, and we've already found penicillin and yeast and all these amazing things that are part of everyday life what else can we find? So we already know mushrooms are yummy Some have antiviral properties, some can be used in certain medical treatments, and obviously some should be avoided. But with so much still to learn about them, Philip says we also need to think about new ways to grow mushrooms. Um, I I actually saw a TED Talk about two years ago um, by a guy called Gunter Pauli, who founded this thing called The Blue Economy, and he was talking about how you could make protein from waste. Because obviously with the rise of the middle classes globally and in China and India, um, more people are wanting access to protein. And cow farming ain't going to cut it um, (laughs) with all these billions of people coming into the middle classes. So I thought, you know, these mushrooms are 33% protein. If we can create a sustainable model to grow them, then this has the potential to feed, you know, hundreds of millions of people in the future if if we adopt this sort of model. And what is Philip's model? Growing mushrooms out of old coffee grounds. Oyster mushrooms will happily eat coffee, 100% coffee, all day, every day. <laughs> how did you come across, come to this realisation that mushrooms can grow in old coffee grounds? So we mix the coffee waste with um, grain spawn, which is grain that mushrooms have been given earlier in the stage of life, and they kind of 
the mushrooms start to eat the grain. And then what you do is you slowly introduce that grain into the coffee, and then the mushrooms spread out from the grain through the coffee. And where are they getting all this coffee? No, not from cafes. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Jetstar Flight JQ11 through to Tokyo Narita. From airports. So we, rather than going around 70 to 100 different coffee shops and collecting little bits everywhere, we drive to the airport and we get four, 500 kilos in one trip. And we do that twice a week. Um, yeah, because everyone's kind of coming in, coming out. And like if you're in an airport, everyone's tired as hell and just yeah. wants a coffee. Exactly. And um, Heathrow Airport in London approaches about this idea and we might hopefully be building a farm there. Heathrow Airport drinks 35,000 cups of coffee a day, which is about... Two and a half thousand kilos of waste every day. That's also like the cups and the lids and stuff. No, that's just the grounds. Oh, that's just the grounds. That's just the grounds. Two and a half thousand kilos of waste a day. So seventeen thousand kilos a week. So we could grow around three thousand four hundred kilos of mushrooms a week at Heathrow Airport if we got all their coffee. Do you have any I can try? <laughs> Come into the tunnel and try. Yeah. Pretty spicy. Might be a little bit dry. But you know, you can try this one. Oh yeah. Pretty spicy. Spicy. Why are they spicy? It's the type of mushroom they are, and it's also how they're grown. So um, in the wild, wild mushrooms are super, super spicy and earthy. Um, and that's what this, that's the similar sort of flavor that you get out of them in, in the grown in coffee. Does, does the coffee add any additional flavoring, or is it literally just like... It doesn't have flavoring, but there is rumor that it makes them grow a little bit quicker, like the bit of a caffeine kickstart. But yeah. But. So can I eat this? Yeah, of course. Do I just pick it off? Just, just grab, a, grab a little bit off the edge, yeah. Oh. Okay. Oh yeah, they're, they're not like your like standard. No, no. They're, they're, they're packed full of flavor, which is why chefs love them. And um, one of the things we're doing, we're developing um, a part of the company called Foodie Mental, where we actually take parts of food that you wouldn't normally use because you can't eat them. So, for example, the stems of these mushrooms are super rubbery. You never want to eat that. But why throw that out when we can freeze dry that, mix it with salt, and make a beautiful mushroom salt? So we're so we're making these different types of foods that are from rescued food or food you wouldn't normally use to actually sell them to public, raise awareness on food waste, because that's part of the big problem with food security in the future. It's not growing the food, we throw one third of our food away. So it's crazy. Um, so if we can make delicious food out of stuff you wouldn't normally use, then that's a, a, another positive and another educational point that we're trying to get across. Any last tidbits or any last fun facts about mushrooms or anything that you've done with Fungi Mental? So oyster mushrooms can actually eat up oil spills as well and so they can break down hydrocarbons they can soak up nuclear waste soak up um heavy metal waste and we're writing kids books about all this stuff so we're think mr men but we've got ollie the oyster who's our little character that's developing he's got his own little personality going on so he'll be our first book um and it's all about getting kids young and getting an getting them embraced in what mushrooms can do and not just mushrooms but sustainability as a whole um, so we want to tell these stories in a really fun way like Ollie the Oyster Mushroom going around and cleaning up an oil spill from a beach and he sees a hungry person so he chops his hair off and feeds them it and yeah. you know these, these you, can, you can use hair to clean up oil spills as well did you yeah, know? Exactly, exactly so all these, all these things um, that we want to try and make fun and relevant for kids and we want to do road shows around schools with our mushroom master classes um, and just get a whole generation of kids inspired into mycology and sustainability so when they're coming into school and college and uni they're not just thinking about money they're thinking about what career path they can have and that sustainability is now a really viable career path where not only can they make money but they can have you know a net positive impact across social and environmental causes as well 
Philip White, founder of Fungimental. Okay, the UN Climate Conference wrapped up uh, a couple of weeks ago in Marrakesh, and the big thing on everyone's lips was... America? (laughs) America. Well, pretty much. Everyone's kind of freaked out post-Trump, right? Well, now that we're in the post-Obama phase. But yeah, everyone's a bit rattled in terms of exactly what Trump's, I guess, environmental policies will look like. Is it going to be bad? One thing that really got lost in the media hype while Trump was on the presidential campaign trail was everyone said Obama had ratified the Paris Agreement. Essentially what this means is last year's climate conference, everyone came up with their own targets in all of the different countries in terms of how much they would reduce their emissions by. And a couple of months back, it came out like the US and China have both ratified their emissions reductions target. That's good, right? But they haven't. The US have agreed and said this will be the target that we'll meet, but they haven't yet ratified it. That, oh. that kind of hasn't set it in stone. Can I ask, has Australia ratified We have ratified our target. that's good. But that's the concerning thing you'll hear in this story, and we also revisited a couple of weeks back, is when you ratify, there are no legal implications. This is Ian McGregor from the University of Technology Sydney Business School. The problem I have with Donald Trump is I'm not quite sure how much of his election campaign was a reality show, which he knows are very successful, and and sort of being the more outrageous as possible in a reality show context. So he labelled climate change as a Chinese hoax and said the US would you know not take any action, etc. There was a, a, a US senator who was a complete friend of Corby Bernardi in terms of a climate denialist, but that's a small group in the US Senate. Even the Senator Byrd, um, Democrat from West Virginia, which is a big coal state, has said in recent years that the Byrd-Hagel resolution, which said that the U.S. wouldn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol, was a mistake. Um, so even though he comes from a coal state, he's turned around on that position on Kyoto and, and turned around on climate change. So I think the chances of the U.S. ratifying the Paris Agreement are still quite low. Why? Okay, it takes a two-thirds majority of the U.S. Senate to ratify an agreement, and the president has to really push for the Senate to ratify the agreement. Obama wasn't confident he could get it through. He was kind of leaving that to Hillary in the hope that they'd get more Democratic senators and less climate nihilists um, senators into the Senate to get the two-thirds majority that's needed for the U.S. to ratify any international agreement, treaty, or whatever. So a lot of the Republican senators seem to be on the more climate denialist side. A lot of the Republican senators, um, it costs millions or tens of millions of dollars to run a Senate campaign in the U.S., uh, especially in states like California. Um, and a lot of them have very large donations from uh, the coal industry, the oil industry, and the car industry, which are all coal-fired electricity generation, uh, or fossil fuel electricity generation, which are all you know very powerful lobby groups in the U.S. and have basically undermined any action in climate change in the U.S. for the last 20 years. So how... Likely, do you see that the U.S. will pull out their pledge from the Paris Agreement, like take out that pledge of what their emissions would be? There is really no enforcement mechanisms on the intended nationally determined contributions. And the way the Paris Agreement is structured, those intended nationally determined contributions only become commitments when you ratify the treaty. So Australia's will now become its nationally determined contributions 
now Australia has ratified. And the only proviso on that was you couldn't weaken your commitments between the INDC and ratification, but you could strengthen them. So the U.S. has submitted intended nationally determined contributions, but if it doesn't ratify it, it means it hasn't actually committed to meeting those emission reduction targets. But do you see that personally? Do you see that happening? Yes, I regrettably from what I've read, and I've got uh, good contacts in um, U.S. Climate Action Network, etc., they think there is a significant risk that U.S. won't ratify the Paris Agreement. Uh, they think it's unlikely that U.S. will go as far as um, withdrawing from the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change, partly because the convention doesn't really commit you to doing anything because when it was negotiated under George Bush Sr., um, the U.S. said it wouldn't do anything to that would damage its economy in order to address climate change. So uh, it's, the, the original convention is a very weak agreement anyway, so there's probably a little point in the U.S. pulling out of that. Given that Australia has ratified its Paris Agreement and given that there looks to be a likelihood that America won't ratify their Paris Agreement, do you think that gives Australia an opportunity to kind of stand on its own two feet now in terms of being more proactive when it comes to addressing climate change removed from the US? I don't think Australia was ever particularly that influenced by the US. The, the Australia is influenced by the power of the coal lobby in Australia, the coal-fired generation lobby in Australia. So the big fossil fuel-driven industries in Australia are really powerful lobby groups in Canberra. I've got insiders, got lobbyists, full-time lobbyists in Canberra. As you saw when we had a carbon price, there was a huge backlash sort of orchestrated and a lot behind the scenes and trying to stir up, you know, Alan Jones, that this was the worst thing that ever happened. So Australia has generally taken its own position on climate change recently. I, I know John Howard didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol, and that was kind of seen as the US didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol. But since we ratified Kyoto under Rudd, we've taken a, a different position. And to be perfectly honest, in the umbrella group includes the US, includes Australia, includes Japan, includes Canada, includes New Zealand, includes Russia. The U.S. is going to be an outlier. Everyone expected all the countries to ratify the Paris Agreement until Trump was elected. Ian McGregor there, lecturer from the University of Technology, Sydney Business School. Thanks for listening to the show. This show was produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more info about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. If you liked today's episode, you can go back and hear a whole bunch more on our website or on our podcast. You can find us on any podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe and Nina, thanks so much for coming back. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Ellen Leibeter will be back for our last episode of the year next week so see you then